Amsterdam City Walk. Amsterdam today looks much as it did in its golden age, the 1600s. It's a retired sea captain of a city, still in love with life, with a broad outlook and a salty story to tell. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Thanks for joining me on this walk through the historic core of Amsterdam. It's a great way to get oriented to the city and some of the sites you may want to visit in depth later. During the Dutch Golden Age, Amsterdam was the world's richest city, an international sea trading port, and the cradle of capitalism. Wealthy democratic burghers built the city almost from scratch. They created a wonderland of canals lined with townhouses topped with fancy gables. Immigrants, Jews, outcasts, and political rebels were drawn here by its tolerant atmosphere, while painters such as Rembrandt captured that atmosphere on canvas. Allow about two hours for this two-mile walk down the city's spine from the train station to Leidseplein. The walk is best during the day when churches and sites are open. A word of warning, everywhere in Amsterdam, be aware of silent transportation, such as bikes and trams. This is especially true when you're wearing earbuds and absorbed in your surroundings. Now, let's get going. Today's Amsterdam is a progressive place of 700,000 people and almost as many bikes. It's a city of good living, cozy cafes, great art, street corner jazz, stately history, and a spirit of live and let live. We'll approach Amsterdam like an anthropologist observing a strange culture. It's a place where carillons chime quaintly alongside coffee shops where everyday people go to smoke pot. Take it all in. Then pause to watch the clouds blow past stately old gables and see the golden age reflected in a quiet canal. How to use this audio guide. This audio tour gives each of Amsterdam's greatest sightseeing hits its own title and track number, much like the songs of a CD or album. You can skip ahead or tailor your itinerary to your own tastes. But navigating through Amsterdam on your own can be confusing, and it's easiest to just follow the tour in the order I've laid out. To help you along, I've invited my colleague, Lisa. Welcome, Lisa. Hello. She'll give directions from one site to the next. After listening to her directions, you can pause the audio guide, then restart it at the next audio track when you're ready for the next site. Ideally, this walk will unfold in real time. You should be able to sightsee from start to finish without pausing or fast-forwarding much at all. But of course, when you want to linger longer, pushing pause is encouraged. If you're taking this tour with my Rick Steves Audio Europe app, don't miss its latest features. There are zoomable maps showing the route and each stop. The maps are viewable while you listen. A 20-second rewind button allows you to catch something you might have missed or hear vital directions a second time. And the speed button makes me talk faster, chipmunk style. You can refer to the actual script of this tour as you listen. And if you'd like more information on the spot, you can download our entire guidebook on this destination with a couple of clicks. Those following this tour on their iPod rather than with my fancier app may find that my guidebook to this place with its maps, photos, and exhibit titles can make following this audio tour easier. Be aware that even with the very best of directions, sightseeing a big city can be confusing. Roads might be closed, and sites can be covered with scaffolding. Be flexible, and don't hesitate to show the picture of a site to a local or to one of your fellow travelers and ask for help. As always in Amsterdam, be aware of silent transportation, trams, electric mopeds, and bicycles. 
don't walk on tram tracks or bike paths. Before you step off any sidewalk, do a double or triple check in both directions to make sure all's clear. Now, let's head into Amsterdam and get started. Lisa, take us in. Thanks, Rick. The tour begins. Central Station. Start at Central Station. Stand on the square fronting the station and take in the city, which stretches before you. Here, where today's train travelers enter the city, sailors of yore disembarked from seagoing ships. They were met by street musicians, pickpockets, hotel runners, and ladies carrying red lanterns. Central Station, built in the late 1800s, sits on reclaimed land that was once the mouth of the harbor. The station, with warm red brick and prickly spires, is neo-Gothic from the late 1800s, built during Amsterdam's economic revival. One of the towers has a clock dial. The other tower's dial is a weather vane. Watch the hand twitch as the wind gusts every direction. N-Z-O-N-W. Let's get oriented. Nord, Zud, Ost, and West. Facing the station, you're facing north. Further north, on the other side of the station, is the Eye, a body of water that gives Amsterdam access to the open sea. Now, turn around 180 degrees and, with your back to the station, face the city, looking south. The city spreads out before you like a fan, in a series of concentric canals. Ahead of you stretches the street called Damrak, which leads to Dam Square, half a mile away. And that's where we'll be heading. To the left of Damrak is the city's old side. These days, that historic neighborhood has become the Red Light District. The big church towering above the old side is St. Nicholas Church. It was built in the 1880s when Catholics, after about three centuries of oppression, were finally free to worship in public. We'll learn more about Catholic oppression on our walk. To the right of Damrak is the new part of town, where you'll find the Anne Frank House and the peaceful Jordan neighborhood. The train station is the city's transportation hub. Many trams and taxis leave from out front. Beneath your feet is the newly expanded metro line, built to accommodate the tens of thousands of people living in North Amsterdam, a fast-growing suburb beyond the eye. On your far right, in front of the Ibis Hotel, is a huge multi-story parking garage. This is for bicycles only. Biking in Holland is the way to go. The land's flat, distances are short, and there are designated bike paths everywhere. This bike parking garage is completely free, courtesy of the government, to encourage this green and ultra-efficient mode of transportation. Let's head out. With your back to Central Station, start walking south from the station into the city to the head of Damrak. Once again, be careful crossing the street. Be aware of trams, bikes, and cars. When you reach the head of Damrak, keep going straight, following the crowds south on Damrak, walking along the right side of the street. Damrak, from the station to the stock exchange. This street was once a riverbed. It's where the Amstel River flowed north into the eye, which led to a vast inlet of the North Sea called the Zuider Sea. It's this unique geography that turned Amsterdam into a center of trade. Boats could sail up the Amstel into the interior of Europe or out to the North Sea to reach the rest of the world. As you stroll along Damrak, look left. There's a marina lined with old brick buildings. 
Though these aren't terribly historic, the scene still captures a bit of Golden Age Amsterdam. Think of it. Back in the 1600s, this area was the harbor, and those buildings warehoused exotic goods from all over the world. All along Damrak, you'll pass a veritable gauntlet of touristy shops. These seem to cover every Dutch cliché. You'll see wooden shoes, which the Dutch used to wear to get around easily in the marshy soil. There's tulips, real and plastic, from Holland's famed fresh flower industry. Heineken fridge magnets advertise one of the world's most popular Pilsner beers. You'll listen to a hand-cranked barrel organ and see windmill-shaped salt shakers. There's all things orange, hats, and T-shirts, because that's the official color of the Dutch royal family. At Damrak number 18, you'll find the city's most notorious commodity on display. It's the Damrak Sex Museum. As a port town catering to sailors and businessmen far away from home, Amsterdam has always accommodated the sex trade. This museum tells the story of sex since Roman times. Every deviation is revealed in various displays. It touches on sex around the world, has a Marilyn Monroe tribute, and some nifty S&M displays. Keep walking up Damrak for more touristy delectables. Teasers at number 36 is the local Hooters. You'll also pass places selling the popular local fast food, French fries. Here they're called Flamse Frites, or Flemish fries, since they were invented here in the Low Countries. The stand at Damrak number 41 is a favorite. Locals dip their fries in mayonnaise, not ketchup. All along Damrak, you'll pass many restaurants. It quickly becomes obvious that international cuisine is almost like local cuisine here in cosmopolitan Amsterdam. Indonesian restaurants are especially popular since that was a former Dutch colony. There you can order rice toffel, a sampler assortment of Indonesian dishes that's big enough for two, or three. Also popular in Amsterdam are Argentinian steakhouses. Amsterdamers on the go usually just grab a simple sandwich called a broja, or a pita bread wrap called a shawarma from a Middle Eastern takeout joint. Keep going up Damrak. Keep an eye out for a long brick building on the left. Remember, we're walking along what was once the Amstel River. Today, the Amstel is channeled into canals, and its former mouth is covered by the central station. But Amsterdam still remains a major seaport. That's because, in the 19th century, the Dutch dug the North Sea Canal. Today, more than 100,000 ships a year dock in the outskirts of Amsterdam, making it Europe's fourth busiest seaport. For all of Amsterdam's existence, it's been a trading center, and the stock exchange continues that tradition. The Stock Exchange is the long brick building with the square clock tower on the left. Damrak, from the Stock Exchange to Dam Square. This impressive structure, the Stock Exchange, or Burse, was erected in 1903, made of 9 million bricks. Like so many buildings in this once marshy city, it was constructed on a foundation of pilings, some 5,000 tree trunks hammered vertically into the soil. When the stock exchange opened in 1903, it was one of the world's first modernist buildings. It has the geometric, minimal, no-frills, modernist style. It helped set the architectural tone for many 20th century buildings that followed, emphasizing function over looks. Continue walking up Damrak, making your way to the end of the long building. The Stock Exchange building is only a century old. 
but Amsterdammers have gathered in this neighborhood to trade since medieval times. Back then, trading stock meant buying and selling any kind of goods that could be loaded or unloaded onto a boat. Goats, chickens, or kegs of beer. Over time, they were exchanging slips of paper, or futures, rather than actual goods. Traders needed money changers, who needed bankers, who made money by lending money. By the 1600s, Amsterdam had become one of the world's first great capitalist cities, loaning money to free-spending kings, dukes, and bishops all over Europe. When you reach the end of the building, detour left into the square called Bursplein. In 1984, the Stock Exchange building was turned into a cultural center, and the exchange moved next door to the Euronext complex. Euronext is a joint attempt by France, Belgium, and the Netherlands to compete with the power of Britain's stock exchange. Notice the stock price readout board. Green is going up and red is losing value. How's your Heineken stock doing? Amsterdam still thrives as the center of Dutch business. It's the home to global giants like Heineken, Shell Oil, Philips Electronics, and Unilever. Now, return to Damrak. But before leaving Burstplein, consider popping into the Café Burse. With its minimalist interior and heroic worker themes, it's a nice place for a break. Once you're back on Damrak, continue south along the busy boulevard to Dam Square. As you make your way to Dam Square, where Amsterdam was born, let's review the physical layout of the city. Again, it sits in the marshy delta at the mouth of the Amstel River. The city's completely man-made, built from scratch. First, the land itself had to be drained. The excess water was channeled into canals. Dikes were built to protect the city from the sea's tidal surge. Buildings had to be constructed atop a foundation of millions of pilings. These had to be driven 30 feet deep into the soggy soil, first through a layer of unstable mud, and then into a layer of more stable sand. The locals built of brick, because wood buildings too often caught fire. Even today, buildings lean this way and that as the land settles. Though Amsterdam was an engineering nightmare, you couldn't beat the location. Boats could arrive here from Germany by riverboat down the Rhine, or from England across the Channel, or from Denmark by entering the Zyder Zee Inlet of the North Sea. No wonder that St. Nicholas, protector of water travelers, became the city's patron saint. Even in medieval times, Amsterdam was a bustling trade center. They exchanged locally caught herring for German beer, cloth, bacon, salt, and wine. In the year 1300, the region's leading bishop granted the town a charter. Amsterdammers could then set up law courts, judge their own matters, and be essentially autonomous. The town thrived, and the center of it all was just up ahead, Dam Square. Continue up Damrak until it opens into Dam Square. Make your way carefully across the street to the cobblestone pavement. Now, stand in the middle of the square and take it all in. Dam Square This is the historic heart of Amsterdam. The city got its start right here in about the year 1250. That's when fishermen in this marshy delta settled along the built-up banks of the Amstel River. They built a dam, blocking the Amstel River, creating a small village called Amstel Dam. To the north was the Damrak, meaning Outer Harbor, a waterway that eventually led to the sea. That's the street we just walked. 
To the south was the Rokin, or inner harbor, for river traffic. Nowadays, Rokin is also a main street. With access to the sea, the fishermen were soon trading with German riverboats traveling downstream and with seafaring boats from Stockholm, Hamburg, and London. Land trade routes also converged here, and a customs house stood on this spot. Dam Square was the center of it all. Today, Dam Square is still the center of Dutch life, at least symbolically. It's home to the ceremonial town hall and the country's major department stores. Mimes, jugglers, and human statues mingle with locals and tourists alike. As Holland's most recognizable place, Dam Square is where political demonstrations begin and end. Pan the square clockwise and take in the sights. First, the Royal Palace. That's the large domed building on the west side. Despite its name, it's really the former town hall, and Amsterdam is one of the cradles of modern democracy. In medieval times, this was where the city council and mayor met. Amsterdam was a self-governing community that prided itself on its independence and thumbed its nose at royalty. In about 1650, when Amsterdam was one of the richest cities on the planet, the old medieval town hall was replaced with this one. Its style is appropriately classical, recalling Greece, the birthplace of democracy. The triangular pediment features denizens of the sea cavorting with Neptune and his gilded copper trident, all appropriate imagery for sea-trading Amsterdam. The building became known as the Royal Palace in 1806 when Napoleon invaded and installed his brother, Louis, as king. Even after Napoleon was defeated, the victorious powers dictated that the Netherlands remain a monarchy under a noble Dutch family called the House of Orange. Today, the palace remains one of the four official residences of Queen Beatrix. By the way, though Amsterdam is the nominal capital of the Netherlands, all governing activity and the Queen's actual permanent home are in The Hague, a city 30 miles away. Amsterdam's royal palace is open to visitors. Inside, you can see a grand hall and about 20 lavishly decorated rooms. The chandeliers, paintings, statues, and furniture all reflect Amsterdam's former status as the center of global trade. Now pan to the right of the royal palace to the new church, or Nuvakirk. Though called the new church, it's actually 600 years old, a mere 100 years newer than the old church, which is in the red light district. The sundial above the entrance once served as the city's official timepiece. If you pay to go inside, you'll see an impressive, well-lit, but otherwise bare interior. But cheapskates can get a glimpse for free. You can enter through the gift shop, just to the left of the main church entrance. Once inside, you can climb the stairs to a terrace with a small free museum and great views of the nave. This church is where many of the Netherlands monarchs are married and where all are crowned. Continue panning to the right. There's the proud old department store called De Bienkorf, or The Beehive. The store's upstairs cafe is a great place to rise above it all for a light meal and pleasant views. Further right, the Grand Hotel Krasnopolsky has a lovely circa 1900 winter garden. A few blocks behind the hotel is the edge of the red light district. To the right of the hotel stretches the street called The Ness, lined with some of Amsterdam's edgy live theater venues. Panning further right is Rokin Street, Damrak's counterpart. Next, just to the right of the touristy Madame Tussauds, 
is Calverstraat, a busy pedestrian-only shopper's mall, where we'll walk in just a moment. Standing tall on Dam Square is a white obelisk, the National Monument. It was built in 1956 as a World War II memorial. The Nazis occupied Holland from 1940 to 1945. They deported 100,000 Amsterdam Jews, driving many, including young Anne Frank and her family, into hiding. Near the end of the war, the hunger winter of 1944-1945 killed thousands and forced many to survive on little more than tulip bulbs. The obelisk, with its carvings of the crucified Christ, men in chains, and howling dogs, remembers the suffering of that grim time. Now the structure is also considered a monument for peace. Let's move on, but before we do, let me remind you that I've got two more audio tours of Amsterdam, a walk through Amsterdam's Jordaan neighborhood, and a tour of the red light district. Both tours start right here on Dam Square. Let's continue south. From Dam Square, head south down Calverstraat. You'll find the entrance to Calverstraat near the Rabobank sign. Rabobank? Don't get any funny ideas. Calverstraat and the Papagai Church. Start walking down this pedestrian-only shopping street. Even bikers need to dismount and walk. This has been a traditional shopping street for centuries, but today it's notorious among locals as a noisy shopping ghetto with chain stores and no soul. For smaller, more elegant stores, you can try the adjacent district called Danaean Strachis, the Nine Little Streets. It's about four blocks west of Calverstraat. There you'll find about 200 shops and cafes mingling among pleasant canals. As you walk up Calverstraat, keep a sharp eye out. There's a site that's rather easy to miss. It's just before the McDonald's on the right-hand side at number 58 Calverstraat. This is the Petrus in Kirk, better known as De Papagai Hidden Catholic Church. Step inside. This Catholic church is an oasis of peace tucked amid 21st century crass commercialism. It's called a hidden church, though I guess it's not since you found it. But it still keeps a low profile. That's because it dates from an era when Catholics in Amsterdam were forced to worship in private. You see, in the 1500s, Protestants were fighting Catholics all over Europe. Pragmatic Amsterdam tried to stay neutral, doing business with all parties. But in 1578, Protestant extremists took control of the city. They expelled Catholic leaders and bishops and outlawed the religion. Catholic churches were stripped of their lavish decoration and converted into Dutch Reformed churches. Simultaneously, Amsterdam was rising up politically against their Spanish overlords, who were Catholic, and eventually threw them out. For the next two centuries, Amsterdam's Catholics were driven underground. Catholicism was technically illegal, but it was tolerated. Kind of like marijuana these days. Yeah, Catholics could worship as long as they didn't inhale. Actually, Catholics could worship so long as it was practiced in humble, unadvertised places, like this church. By the way, this church gets its nickname, de Papagai, from a parrot that was carved over the entrance of the house that formerly stood on this site. Now, a stuffed parrot hangs in the nave to remember that original Papagai. 
Today, the church asks visitors for a mere 15 minutes for God. You'll see the sign, In Quartier for God. The church stands as a metaphor for how religion has long been a marginal part of highly commercial and secular Amsterdam. Return to Kalverstraat and continue south. We're headed for the Amsterdam Museum, which is about 50 yards further down Kalverstraat. As you walk, do some people watching. The Dutch are unique. They're a handsome and healthy people, among the world's tallest. The average height for a man is six foot one, and for a woman, five foot six. They ride their bikes all over town. Their average income is higher than in the United States. They're among the most open and honest people you'll find anywhere, refreshingly blunt. They like to laugh, are connoisseurs of world culture, appreciate Rembrandt paintings, Indonesian food, and the latest French film. But they do it all with an unsnooty, blue jeans attitude. At number 92, Kalberstraat crosses Wyda Kapelsteg. Pause here. Look to the right at an archway that leads to the Amsterdam Museum. The Amsterdam Museum and Civic Guards Gallery. Pause at the entrance to the museum complex to view the archway. On the slumping arch is Amsterdam's coat of arms, a red shield with three X's and a crown. The X-shaped cross represents the crucifixion of St. Andrew, the patron saint of fishermen. There's three X's to symbolize the three virtues of heroism, determination, and mercy. But this symbolism was only declared by the Queen after the Dutch experience in World War II. Before that, it's thought that they symbolized the three great medieval threats, fire, flood, and plague. The crown dates to 1489 when Maximilian I, a Habsburg emperor, also ruled the Low Countries. He paid off a big loan with help from Amsterdam city bankers and, as thanks for the cash, gave the city permission to use his prestigious trademark, the Habsburg crown. Now check out the relief above the door, dated 1581. It shows boys around a dove asking for charity, reminding all who pass that this was once an orphanage. People would donate by putting a coin in the slot of a donation box. You'll see the bronze nipple-crowned box in front of you on the sidewalk. Now go inside. There's a pleasant cafe, a pay toilet, and a shaded courtyard lined by old lockers for the orphans' uniforms. The courtyard leads to another courtyard with the best city history museum in town, the Amsterdam Museum. Between the two courtyards on the left is a free, glassed-in passageway. Enter this passageway, which is lined with paintings. This is the Civic Guard Gallery, or Shooter's Gallery. If the gallery is closed, you'll have to skip ahead to the next track, the Begeinhof. To get to the Begeinhof, you'll need to backtrack to Kalverstraat, continue south, and then turn right on Begeinensteg. It's on your map. But if the Civic Guard's gallery is open, let's step inside. This hall features group portraits from Amsterdam's Golden Age, the early 1600s. A giant statue of Goliath and a knee-high David from 1650 watch over the whole thing. Stroll around and gaze into the eyes of the hard-working men and women who made tiny Holland so prosperous and powerful. These are ordinary middle-class people, merchants and traders, dressed in their Sunday best. They come across as good people, honest, businesslike, and friendly. 
Holland got rich the old-fashioned way. They earned it. Dutch fishermen sold their surplus catch in distant areas of Europe, importing goods from these far lands. In time, fishermen became traders, and by 1600, Holland's merchant fleets ruled the waves. They had colonies as far away as India, Indonesia, and America. Remember, New York was originally New Amsterdam. Back home, these traders were financed by shrewd Amsterdam businessmen on the new frontiers of capitalism. These people are clearly proud of their accomplishments. The portraits show the men gathered with their Civic Guard militia units. These men defended Holland, but the Civic Guards were also fraternal organizations of business bigwigs, the Rotary Clubs of the 17th century. The weapons they carry, pikes and muskets and so on, are mostly ceremonial. Many paintings look the same in this highly stylized genre. The men usually sit arranged in two rows. Someone holds the militia's flag. Later group portraits showed not military captains, but captains of industry going about their work, dressed in suits, along with the tools of their trade, ledger books, quill pens, and money. Everyone looks straight out, and every face is lit perfectly. Each paid for his own portrait and wanted it right. It took masters like Rembrandt and Franz Hals to take the starch out of the poses and compose more natural scenes. Rick, speaking of starch, what's up with those ruffled collars? I can't tell you why men and women of the Dutch Golden Age found these fan-like collars attractive, but they certainly were all the rage here and elsewhere in Europe. It started in Spain in the 1540s, and the style really took off with a marvelous discovery in 1565, starch. Within decades, Europe's wealthy merchant class was wearing these things, nine-inch collars made from up to 18 yards of material. The ruffs were detachable and made from a long, pleated strip of linen set into a neckband. You tied it in front with strings. Big ones required that you wear a wire frame underneath for support. Look around and you might see several different types. The cartwheel, that was the biggest. A double ruff had two layers of pleats and a cabbage was somewhat asymmetrical. Ruffs required elaborate maintenance. First, you washed and starched the linen. While the cloth was still wet, hot metal pokers were painstakingly inserted into each of the folds to form the characteristic figure-eight pattern. The starchy ruffs were then stored in special round boxes to hold their shape. For about a century, Europeans loved the ruff. But by 1630, Holland had come to its senses and the fad faded away. Before you leave, find a modern painting, Erwin Olaf's Dutch School. This is a fun look at the city's cultural leaders in 2006, posing as Golden Age bigwigs. The gallery offers a shortcut to our next stop, a hidden and peaceful little courtyard called the Begeinhof. To get to the Begeinhof, exit out the far end of the Civic Guards Gallery, once in the light of day, continue ahead one block farther south. By the way, as we approach the Begeinhof, a word of caution. Besides being a tourist attraction, the Begeinhof is also a place where people live. So be considerate and don't photograph the residents or their homes. You'll soon reach a humble gate on the right. This is the entrance to the Begeinhof. Let's go in.
The Begine Hof. This quiet courtyard, lined with houses around a church, has sheltered women since 1346. What a contrast with the noisy Kalverstraat just steps away. This was for centuries the home of Begines, pious and simple women who removed themselves from the world at large to dedicate their lives to God. When it was first established, it literally was a woman's island, a circle of houses facing a peaceful courtyard completely surrounded by water. Begin your visit by finding the statue of one of these charitable sisters. You'll find it just beyond the church. The Begines were a lay order of Christian women. Their ranks swelled during the Crusades when so many men took off never to return, leaving society with an abundance of single women. Later, women widowed by the hazards of overseas trade lived out their days as Begines as well. Poor and rich women alike turned their backs on materialism and marriage to live here in Christian poverty. And though obedient to a mother superior, the members of the lay order of Begines were not nuns. The Begines were very popular in their communities for the lives they led, unpretentious, simple, and with a Christ-like dedication to serving others. They spent their days deep in prayer and busy with daily tasks, spinning wool, making lace, teaching, and caring for the sick and poor. In quiet seclusion, they provided a striking contrast to the more decadent and corrupt Roman church, inspiring one another as well as their neighbors. Now turn your attention to the brick-faced English Reformed Church. The church was built in 1420 to serve the Beguine community. But in 1607, this church became Anglican. The church served as a refuge for English traders and religious refugees fleeing persecution in England. The famous pilgrim stopped here in tolerant Amsterdam and may have even prayed in this very church before sailing to religious freedom in America. If the church is open, its hours are sporadic, step inside. At the far end, you'll see a stained glass window. It shows the pilgrims praying before boarding the Mayflower. Along the right-hand wall of the church is an old pew they may have sat on. On the altar is a Bible from 1763, with lots of old-style language and lettering. Now head back outside. Find the church that faces the English Reformed Church. This is the Catholic Church. Because Catholics were persecuted, this had to be a low-profile, hidden church. Notice the painted-out windows on the second and third floors. Step inside, going through the low-profile doorway. You can pick up an English brochure near the entry. This church served Amsterdam's oppressed 17th-century Catholics who refused to worship as Protestants. It's lovingly decorated, if on the cheap. Try tapping softly on a column. That's not real marble. Amsterdam's Catholics must have joyfully celebrated the day when, in the 19th century, they were legally allowed to say Mass. Step back outside. Survey the houses around the courtyard, but be discreet and stay near the churches. The last Begine died in 1971, but today this Begeinhof thrives. It still provides subsidized housing to about a hundred needy single women, mostly Catholic seniors. The Begeinhof is just one of a few dozen other hafias, or little housing projects surrounding courtyards, that dot Amsterdam. 
The statue of the Begain faces a black wooden house at number 34. This structure dates from 1477. It's the city's oldest house. Originally, the entire city consisted of wooden houses like this one. They were eventually replaced with brick houses to minimize the fire danger of having so many homes packed so close together. Now, stroll a few steps to the left of the old house. There's a display of colorfully painted and carved gable stones. Stones like these once adorned house fronts and served as street numbers all over Amsterdam. We'll exit the Begeinhof nearby. Near the wooden house and gables, you'll find a little corridor. Enter the corridor and up a few steps. You'll emerge into a lively modern square called Spau. From Spau to the Mint Tower The square called Spau is lined with cafes and bars. It's one of the city's more popular spots for nightlife and sunny afternoon people-watching. As you emerge from the Begeinhof, turn left and walk about two blocks back to the pedestrian-only Kalverstraat. As you walk, think of how Amsterdam continues to evolve. In medieval times, it was strictly Catholic. In the 16th century, it became rabidly Protestant. And today, Holland still has something of a religious divide, but not a bitter one. Amsterdam itself is, like many big cities, pretty unchurched. But the Dutch countryside is much more religious, including a Bible Belt region where 98% of the people are Protestant. Overall, in the Netherlands, the country is divided fairly evenly. About a third are Catholics, a third Protestants, and a third are those who see Sunday as a day to sleep in and enjoy a lazy brunch. Pause when you reach the intersection with Calverstraat. From here, if you continue to head another block, you'd reach a canal, the busy street called Rokin, and a dock that offers reliable canal boat cruises. But our tour continues up Calverstraat, so turn right, walking south on pedestrian-only Calverstraat. We'll be walking a couple hundred yards to where Calverstraat runs into an old clock tower. This stretch of Calverstraat offers more modern shopping. As you stroll, let me mention some souvenirs popular for visitors to the Netherlands. There's Delftware, Ceramic plates, vases, and tiles painted blue and white. The good stuff is very expensive, but fireplace tiles sold at gift shops are reasonable. Diamonds have been a big Dutch commodity ever since Golden Age traders first exploited the mines of Africa. Dutch gin, called Janever, is sold in traditional stoneware bottles. For chocolate lovers, there are many proud and local makers. Old maps and books capture the musty days of the Golden Age. And there's always a good selection of art-related gifts, Van Gogh posters, Rembrandt mouse pads, and so on. As you begin to approach the Mint Tower, you'll find two department stores, one on either side of Calverstraat. Room and Driesman, on the left, is where locals go for basic supplies, nothing fancy. It has a cafeteria where shoppers and hungry tourists can grab an easy lunch, the cheap and cheery Laplace. Across the street, the Calvertoren complex is a modern mall with a slanting glass elevator inside. You can ride this to the top floor to enjoy something that's rare in altitude-challenged Amsterdam, a commanding city view. But we are moving on. Calverstraat leads directly to an old tower with a clock on it, the Mint Tower. 
the Mint Tower. This tower, which marked the limit of the medieval walled city, served as one of the original gates. The city walls were girdled by a moat, now called the Single Canal. Until about 1500, the area beyond here was nothing but marshy fields and a few farms on reclaimed land. The Mint Tower's steeple was added later, in the year 1620, as you can see written below the clock face. Today, the tower's a favorite with Amsterdam's marijuana culture. Stoners just love to take a photo of the clock and its 1620 sign at exactly 420. Why? Well, because 420 is the universally recognized time when work ends and you fire up a joint. I still don't get it. Okay, Lisa, what time is 1620 on the 24-hour clock? 1620 minus 12, 420. Synchronicity. Dude. Before moving on, look left and gaze down Regulaersbreestraat. Midway down the block, the twin green domes mark the exotic Tushinsky Theater. Here you can see current movies, always in their original language with Dutch subtitles, in a sumptuous Art Deco setting. Beyond the theater, way at the end of the long block where you see the trees, is Rembrandtplein, another major center for nightlife. But we won't go there on this tour. Now, continue past the Mint Tower. First, you'll walk a few yards south along busy Weiselstraat, crossing the canal. As always in Amsterdam, keep an eye out for trams. Then turn right and walk west along the south bank of the single canal. The canal is lined with the greenhouse shops of the flower market. The Flower Market The stands along this busy block sell cut flowers, plants, bulbs, seeds, and garden supplies. Browse your way slowly, headed along the single canal to the end of the block. This market, the Blumenmarkt, is a testament to Holland's longtime love affair with flowers. The Netherlands is by far the largest flower exporter in all of Europe, and a major flower power worldwide. If you're looking for a souvenir, there's a huge selection here. Certain seeds are marked as okay to bring back into the United States through customs. And how about that marijuana starter kit in a can? It's affordable, portable, and... Um, probably not. Okay, tulips then. The best-known Dutch flower is the tulip. They're actually native to Central Asia. The name comes from the flower's hat-like appearance. Tulip. It's from the Turkish word for turban. In the 1500s, a few tulip bulbs found their way from Asia all the way to Holland. The hardy bulbs thrived in the sandy soil of Holland's reclaimed land and thus began one of the oddest chapters in Dutch history. It was the Golden Age, and merchants had money to burn. They loved buying flowers for their homes. Within a generation, tulips grew from a trendy fad into an all-out frenzy. Prices shot way up. In fact, a single-prized bulb could sell for the equivalent of thousands of dollars. Speculators jumped in, too, and Amsterdam's stock exchange hummed with frantic businessmen trading tulip futures. By 1637, it was full-blown tulip mania. Yes, that's what even the Dutch called it. Then the tulip bubble burst. Overnight, once wealthy investors were left with nothing but worthless pieces of paper or warehouses full of bulbs nobody wanted. The crash was devastating, 
even playing a role in the decline of the Golden Age. But Holland's love affair of this delightful flower lives on. Today, tulips are a major industry and are firmly planted in the Dutch psyche. Continue through the flower market to where it ends at the next bridge. Here, you're at the square named Koningsplein. Koningsplein. This pleasant square with a popular outdoor food stand is a great place to choke down a raw herring. Remember, herring was the commodity that first put Amsterdam on the trading map. It's also what Dutch sailors ate for protein on those long, cross-global voyages. Even today, herring is a local specialty, and locals flock to this neighborhood fixture. In season, you'll see the sign, Holland's Nuva. That means the herring are new or fresh, caught during the season, May and June. Dutch people eat it with onions and pickles. Your utensil? A Dutch flag toothpick. Amsterdamers like to eat the fish whole. You grab it by the tail, tip your head back, and down she goes. Others prefer it Rotterdam style, chopped up in cubes and served on a little paper plate. Uh, I think I'll take mine on a sandwich. It's your loss, Lisa. If you're ready for a break before the final stretch of our walk, grab a seat on one of the benches facing the canal and munch away. From Koningsplein, we'll turn left, heading straight south to Leidseplein. We'll be walking along the street called Leidsestraat. Remember, from here on, you're walking in a straight line to the end of our tour. Leidsestraat, Part 1, Canals. From Koningsplein, start heading south. At first, the street is labeled simply Koningsplein. You'll pass by Amsterdam's leading bookstore. Soon, Koningsplein becomes Leidsestraat. Keep your wits about you along here. It's a busy street, crowded with shoppers, tourists, bicycles, and trams. Don't walk on the tram tracks. By the way, notice that as the street narrows, trams need to wait their turn to share a single track. As you walk, you'll cross several grand canals. Pause at the first canal, Herengracht. Looking left down Herengracht, you'll see the so-called golden curve of the canal. It's lined with stately townhouses sporting especially nice gables. Amsterdam has many different types of gables, bell-shaped, step-shaped, and so on. This stretch is best known for its cornice gables, straight across. These topped the classical-looking facades of the homes of rich merchants, the Heron, who lived on this canal. The Herengracht. Continue on up Leidsestraat to the next canal. There are so many canals in Amsterdam because the city was founded in a marshy river delta, so they needed to keep the water at bay. They built a dike near today's central station to keep out the sea tide surge. Then they dammed the Amstel River and gave it embankments. The excess water was channeled safely away into canals, creating pockets of dry land to build on. They used windmills to harness wind power to pump the water out of the reclaimed land and into the canals. Today, Amsterdam has about a hundred canals. Most are about ten feet deep. They're crossed by some 1,200 bridges, fringed with 100,000 Dutch elm and lime trees, and lined by 2,500 houseboats. 
A system of locks, back near the central station, controls the flow. The locks are opened periodically to flush out the entire system. You'll soon reach the next canal, Kaisersgracht. Cross the bridge. On the right-hand side of Leidzestraat, find the little shop called When Nature Calls. It's at Kaisersgracht number 508. Leidzestraat, Part 2, Shops When Nature Calls is what's known as a smart shop. These are clean, well-lighted, fully professional retail outlets. They sell natural products, including mind-bending drugs, many of which are illegal in the United States. Check out the window displays or go on in and browse. Prices are clearly marked with brief descriptions of the drugs, their ingredients, and their effects in English. You'll find harmless nutrition boosters, tobacco products, and herbal products that work like the dance club drug Ecstasy. They also sell marijuana seeds and hallucinogenic mushrooms. All these products are found in nature. Because of that, Amsterdam considers them legal. Continue up Leidzestraat, headed toward the next canal. For centuries, Amsterdam has taken a tolerant approach to things other societies tried to forbid. Traditionally, the city attracted sailors and businessmen far from home, so it was profitable to allow them to have a little fun. Then, in the 1960s, Amsterdam became a magnet for Europe's hippies. Since then, it's been a world capital of alternative lifestyles. Prostitution is allowed in the red-light district. Smart shops sell psychedelic drugs. And marijuana is openly sold and smoked in the city's many coffee shops. We'll see one up ahead. The Dutch aren't necessarily more tolerant or decadent. They're just pragmatic. They believe it's counterproductive to legislate morality and try to forbid things people are going to do anyway. Prohibition just leads to a black market and more crime. After decades of allowing sex and drugs, the Dutch seem to think their system works, and they make a little extra cash by renting out all their empty prison cells to the Belgians. And really, when you... Excuse me for interrupting your liberal rant, but a few directions? Okay. Soon, Leidzestraat intersects with Prinzengracht Canal. As you cross the bridge, pause for a moment. Look to the left and to the right to see two small sites you may want to visit later. On the right, at Prinzengracht 440, is the Delft Shop. This place sells classic examples of the famous ceramics known as Delftware. Delftware is known for its distinctive blue and white design. It's traditionally made in Delft, a quaint town about 30 miles southwest of here. Dutch traders learned the technique from the Chinese of the Ming Dynasty, and many pieces have an oriental look. If you visit the shop, you might see odd pieces with arms branching off a trunk. These are called flower pagodas, vases designed to display tulips. Looking left, half a block down Prinzengracht, is the home of the Pipe Museum. One of Amsterdam's many delights is that it has so many small specialty museums like this one. From tobacco pipes to houseboats, from marijuana to tattoos, and from handbags to Bibles, you can find a museum to suit your interests in Amsterdam. Now continue up Leidzestraat. At this point, the street becomes increasingly lined with tourist shops and international fashion stores. And watch out for those trams. Yes, Amsterdam is truly a global city. Part of it is history. Amsterdam's always been a port town. Part is necessity. 
the country's tiny and almost nobody else speaks Dutch, so they have to adapt to do business with the rest of the world. Holland is increasingly diverse. The population of the country at large is about 80% ethnic Dutch, 5% from other EU countries, and 15% from Holland's former colonies and ports of call, Indonesia, Turkey, Suriname, and Morocco. The city of Amsterdam itself is even more diverse. The Dutch are trying hard to assimilate these new cultures into the national fabric, to live in harmony. And they have to, because geographically, the Dutch live very close together, 15 times the population density of the United States. Leidseestraat soon spills into our final stop, a square called Leidseplein. Find a place on the square where you won't get in the way of trams, bikes, tourists, and busy locals. Then take it all in. Leidseplein. This is Amsterdam's liveliest square. Filled with outdoor tables under trees, ringed with cafes, theaters, and nightclubs, bustling with tourists, diners, trams, mimes, and fire eaters. No wonder locals and tourists alike come here day and night to sit under the trees, sip a coffee or a beer in the warmth of the sun or the glow of lantern light. Do a 360-degree spin. On the far side of the square is the huge Apple store, sitting on what may be the city's most expensive piece of real estate. To the right of that is the city's main serious theater, the Stad Schoberg. The theater company dates back to the 17th century golden age, and the present building is from 1890. Does the building look familiar with its red brick and fanciful turrets? That's because this building, along with the central station where this walk started, and the Rijksmuseum, were built by the same architect, Petrus Kuypers. Tucked inside the theater is a handy box office. They sell tickets to all kinds of shows and concerts around town, including half-price same-day tickets. Now look to the right of the Stad Schoberg. Down the lane lies the Milkweg, or Milky Way. Back in the 1970s, this nightclub was almost mythical, an entertainment complex entirely devoted to the young generation. Even today, it offers an edgy array of new acts. You could step into their lobby or check out posters nearby to see what's on. Continue panning to the right. On Leidseplein's west side, through the trees, is Boom Chicago at number 12. This comedy nightclub presents English-language spoofs of politics, Amsterdam, and tourists. You can pick up their free informative Intro to Amsterdam magazine at the door. Now, continue panning. The neighborhood beyond Burger King is Restaurant Row. There you'll find countless eateries, Thai, Brazilian, Indian, Italian, Indonesian, and even a few Dutch ones. Next, on the east side of Leidseplein, is the Bulldog Café and Coffee Shop. This is the flagship of several marijuana coffee shops in town with the Bulldog name. Notice the sign above the door. The building once housed a police station. A small green and white decal on the window indicates that it's a city-licensed coffee shop where marijuana is sold and smoked legally. People go into a shop like this and ask the bartender, Can I see the cannabis menu? That's the local code for I want to buy some pot. Then they show you the various types of marijuana for sale, all clearly labeled and priced. You can buy some and smoke it there, along with a cup of coffee or a fresh-squeezed orange juice, or take it to go. Incredible as it may seem to visitors from the United States, the sale of marijuana in public coffee shops has been going on here in Amsterdam for over 30 years. 
it's become just another traditional Dutch cliché, along with windmill salt shakers and wooden shoes. Well, our tour is over. Leidseplein's the perfect jumping-off point for more sightseeing. Vondelpark, the Rijksmuseum, and the Van Gogh Museum are all within a 15-minute walk. And the Heineken Brewery Beer Tour is just half a mile beyond the Rijksmuseum. To return to Central Station or to nearly any place along this walk, hop just about any tram heading down the long street you just walked up. You're right in the heart of Amsterdam's tourist scene, from cafes to churches, from art to nightlife, from the golden age to the cutting-edge present. The city is yours to enjoy. We hope you've enjoyed this city walk through Amsterdam. Thanks to Jean Openshaw, the co-author of this tour. If you're doing more sightseeing in Amsterdam, check out our other audio tours. There's one of the Red Light District and of the Jordaan. This tour was excerpted from the Rick Steves Amsterdam, Bruges, and Brussels guidebook. For more details on eating, sleeping, and sightseeing in those cities, refer to the most recent edition of that guidebook. For more free audio tours and podcasts, and for information about our guidebooks, TV shows, bus tours, and travel gear, visit our website at ricksteves.com. This tour was produced by Cedar House Audio Productions. Thanks, Dunkuvel. Tot ziens. And goodbye for now.